Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter 1. Look at verses 12 through 15 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. As we sang in that last song, that we stand by His righteousness alone before His throne. It's good for us to remember this morning, and the text does this for us as well, to remember that there is a culminating point for all this. And what I say is this, is church life, uh, college life, life itself, everything is going to find its culminating point before His throne. And either those who then have the righteousness of Christ dwelling in them will be in His presence forever, and those who then are found wanting of that and trying to then justify their presence with Him on their own righteousness, they will be separated from Him forever. It is good for us to remember that in a world that is constantly clawing at our affections, drawing us to make this place our home, we need to regularly remember that it does not stop here. Now, believer, Christian, member of UBC, however those descriptions strike you, in particular, we, the church, both larger church and also this local representation of it, known as University Baptist, we of all people should remember that this world is not our home. That everything that we do should be geared toward seeing Christ face to face. That our ambition should be to hear that we have done well and that we have given Him glory. It should be our driving point in everything that we do in this earth. It doesn't mean that we can't take pleasure in temporal things. But it does mean that they are always sub to the ultimate pleasure that we find in Christ alone. This series has been entitled Rooted, Discipleship Runs Deep. It's only for this month. It's only out of Second Peter chapter 1. But it's called this for a reason. We're saying that everything that we do is rooted in the gospel. Every single thing that a believer does and is, is rooted in the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me through his perfect life, meaning that we can't live the perfect life, but God demands it, and Christ did that because we couldn't, so he did that for us. That he died a substitutionary death, meaning that actually because we can't live a perfect life, we deserve the death that Christ had, but Christ didn't deserve it, but he took it on our behalf. Also through his mighty resurrection, that because he's raised from the dead, there's no longer any need for a sacrifice. And therefore, you have to ask yourself, no matter how much you attempt to be good, you have to ask yourself, first of all, are you as good as Jesus and are you going to raise yourself from the dead? Because the only one good enough to stand before the throne is the righteous one and that's Christ. So if Christ is not in you and you're the only one left standing there, that's not enough. But that's good news because he's actually already accomplished all this. And his glorious ascension, meaning after he was raised from the dead, some 40 days later or so, he goes and ascends to the Father and he is then our priest. He's the only go-between. No man, no institution, no church, only Christ. That's all good news. It's good news if you remember the bad news. Okay, people who don't hear bad news, they have no need for good news. The bad news is, is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Not one is righteous, no, not one. So unless you realize that you have a need for a Savior, you're not going to seek after that Savior. 
So no matter how exciting this time of life is for you, whether you're entering into a new job venture, we have many uh, students coming. We have some blessed members. The McKinney's will be leaving us uh, after this Sunday. They've been with us faithfully for five years, and they are heading on uh, to Atlanta, Georgia. And as they go as well, that as we remember these transitions and these times, no matter how exciting it is, they are all temporary locales for us to do what he has said for us to do in the meantime. And that is to essentially understand that this gospel that roots us to himself for eternity roots us in the temporal world to live for him right now. See, the Christian life is being a disciple, hearing and observing, obeying the gospel of Christ. It's learning the gospel. It's living the gospel. It's telling the gospel. The gospel runs deep into our lives and defines everything that a believer is, says, and does. It's simple. In fact, when we read the scriptures and it talks about moving from milk to meat of the word, we have miscalculated that. We think that somehow that means we've understood the gospel in the early stages as if it's the entry code into heaven. But then we go on to the deeper, more sophisticated things. But the fact is, we are rooted in the gospel from beginning to end. In fact, it's more like tip of the iceberg. We stand on that as like the island out into the ocean and we are drawn into safety as we were drowning men and women only to realize that what we're standing on runs deep underneath the surface and it's the most sure footing that you could ever imagine on the planet. That actually the Christian life is learning more about the gospel and applying more of the gospel into more of your life. It's never leaving it as if I'm in, now let's go on to other things. You are rooted in the gospel in every way. Today we're going to look at specifically Peter's purpose statement for both this letter and also his life as it remained. We would do well to understand that what Peter is saying is essentially the purpose statement that we should all be adopting as Christians and as a local church. That the gospel defines who we are and therefore it defines what we do. What we've looked at so far in verse 1, let's read it. Simon, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We talked about how our identity is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in Christ. See, Peter says, I am first of all an apostle and a servant, which actually that word slave means that he is completely and utterly identified, not just by his actions, but his ownership. Everything about him is identified on the one who owns him, Christ. But then he says, you're on equal standing too, but that's only by the righteousness of Christ, meaning our only standing before God that makes any of us good before him, just like an apostle, would be Christ alone. Now, he's our only good. Our identity is rooted in the gospel. It's in Christ. But it's rooted because he has made us and caused us to be in relationship with himself. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, in the intimacy, in the, what we use, epinosis, the full knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. What we do then is that we understand that the gospel then shows us that we have been captivated by the relationship that we have in Christ, and that's what we're to pursue. That's what to be increased. If we're identified in Him, we should grow in loving and knowing Him. And then 3 and 4 gives us kind of the guts of that calling, that He's called us to Himself, and He's equipped us with everything because of what He's done. It's so emphatic on what the Lord has accomplished, not what we accomplish on our own. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises. And and though He doesn't tell us what the promises are, He says that through the promises you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Basically, He says, you have been called and God has shown Himself to be more beautiful to you than this world. His own glory and excellence. And you have seen that beauty and you have said, I may not know how to follow Him, but I know that He is more beautiful than this world that I'm going after. I want to go after Him. And then God makes you promises through His Son, Christ. And we have those promises articulated in other places. I go to prepare a place for you, that your eternal security is established. But through those promises, what He emphasizes here is this. In the process, in the meantime, you are going to have two things happen to you while you're becoming into what it means to be a Christian. You're going to become more like Him and you're going to become less like the world. That's the process of being, or the progress of becoming a disciple. You're becoming more like Him and less like the world. It's that simple. And then because of all that, because He has called you, because He's more beautiful, because He's given you everything you need to do exactly what He's called you to do and to be, and because He's guaranteed for you promises, and these promises assure you that you are going to become more like Him, He says in verse 5, make every effort. And he gives us seven things to go by to make sure are in our lives in an increasing way because verse 8 says if we do these things, practice these things, work hard at these things, then we're going to be effective In verse 9 he says, if you do these things, but if you fail at them, don't do them well. He says, guess what? Work harder. No, that's not what he says. He says, the reason you're not doing these things well is because you have forgotten that Christ is your Redeemer. So he says, actually, go back to verses 1 through 4 and remember who you have been made in Christ, that you're rooted, your identity is rooted in Him because of a relationship with Him, and His divine power has called you supernaturally into this relationship. You have everything that you need already to live faithfully for Him. And then what do you do? Then you get back to work. But you're not working to be identified with Him. He has captured you, captured you out of the cesspool of your own sin and your dead deadness made you His own first before He then calls you to work very hard to live out who He's already made you to be. If you forget that order, you'll be very frustrated. You'll be decimated. You'll be discouraged. You're working out of the fact of who you already have been made to be in Christ. So our identity, our relationship, our calling, and even our effort is all rooted in Him. And it leads us to a blessed assurance in verses 10 and 11. This is how, for those of you, those of us who doubt our salvation, knowing this, knowing this gospel-centeredness, this gospel-rootedness of our, of our own identity and our relationship and our calling and our work, knowing that is the healing point for our doubts. He says, look, if you're living this way, understanding these things, then you will not doubt and you will live faithfully for Him. That's good news. That's gracious of God to give us such things so that we can know that in a world that so claws at our attention and just gropes for our affections that we actually can have some things in Scripture that so clearly keep us centered on who we are in Christ and living who we are in Christ. It's a blessed gift of the Lord. Peter saw this. Peter lived this, and he wanted the followers of Christ to know this. And he made it his ambition till the last day to remind them of this so that even after he's dead and gone, they are living this way because that's for their good. 
So, let me ask you something at the front end. First of all, how confident are you that if you were to die today, that you know without a doubt that Christ would say, welcome in, well done. How confident are you in that? Secondly, I would say, are you really living faithfully? And it's tied to the first question. But are you living faithfully something that's worth dying for? I mean, really. Look, we're all going after different pursuits in this world. I mean, this time for college students is incredibly exciting. But if you're not careful, then all the pursuits of things in this world, what happens is you end up treating college as if your spiritual life, the eternal part, can be put on hold while you pursue temporal things to basically help you make this world more your home. And actually, the opposite couldn't be more true. Actually, college is a great place for you to, yes, indeed, learn. But what you're learning is basically a job platform in order to live faithfully out your eternal life until kingdom come. So let's talk about then this rooted lifestyle. Our lifestyle has to then be rooted in the gospel. It's not just about how we identify ourselves or what relationship we think we have or the calling and even our effort at living like a Christian. We have to understand that this gospel then defines our lifestyle. So let's look at what Peter says in 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. God, I pray that like Paul charged the Ephesian church, that you'd open up the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your word. Lord, that we as well may actually live out these truths to recall these principles, these truths that you give us to preserve gospel practices. That we would live faithfully, God, so that we would bear fruit for your name. God, basically so that we could also then emulate this very lifestyle to others. So that by all means they would remember Christ long before they'd remember us. God, to understand this simple truth of to live like we're dying can do a great deal to help us be serious about how we deal with our time, our money, our relationships. God, I do pray particularly for those who are going into transitions, whether it's the McKinney's or those students that are coming. God, I pray that while they will find much community and identity in places outside the church, I pray that they would find, Lord, a blessed connection and fellowship within a local body so that they are protected and guarded to pursue the things of eternity while there is so much temporal and worldly around them. And God, help us as as a church family to see the opportunity to shepherd and disciple and to mentor those who are in that frame of life. We thank you for your word. May it have its full effect in all of us, even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. First of all, Rooted lifestyle begins with live reminding, live reminding. I know it sounds like an awkward phrase, but look at verse 12. To live in such a way that we are reminding others, which demands our own remembrance. Live reminding, verse 12, he says, therefore I intend always to remind you. You have to look, obviously, it is very intentional. 
I mean, he says, intend. This word actually means to be about something and ready to suffer. So even at the precipice, when he says, I intend to do this, he's saying, at whatever cost, no matter how much it hurts, this is my intention. This is what I'm about. And no matter what opposition or what it costs me, this is what I'm going to do. That's what it means to be intentional. So we have to ask ourselves, are we that vigorous when it comes to making disciples? Because Peter was. And it takes, in a sense, a theology of death for us to understand the nature of really our intent. Because oftentimes we will only do church as long as it's comfortable. As long as it's easy. Peter says, I'm intentional. This is what I'm about and I'm ready to suffer for it. That's what it means to be intent. There's also a sense of purpose here. He says, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. Being intentional means that your sense of purpose, if I'm defined by Christ as true disciples are, then our pursuit of intimacy with Him demands that we then encourage other people to be intimate with Him. He says, I have good standing with Him. To those who have equal standing, I want to encourage you to be close to Jesus. It's the nature of a defined disciple. If you've been made intimate with Christ then you should want and intend to help others be intimate with Christ. It is that simple. We capture a little bit in our passion statement, when we talk about treasuring there in the middle, we believe that glorifying God, He's glorified the most in a sense, biblically speaking, when we treasure Christ above everything else. But we also believe that those who treasure Christ above everything else will increasingly and more naturally reach others. You will talk about the things that you love the most. The more you treasure Christ, the more you will want to then see others treasure Christ as well. But we then, we're not just intentional as far as that, but we're intentionally remembering and reminding in this. Look, this is a, in a more academic sense, you could say this is an orally mnemonic culture. So it's an orally defined culture. They don't have, I don't know how many Bibles we all have in our homes. They didn't have copies of the Word. I'm sure eventually they end up, I know they ended up copying down letters of, of, of what Peter's letter is, but Peter is speaking to them truths that they had heard before and he's repeating it over and over again so that they orally remember these things. They remember these practices. These aren't just cheesy acrostics you use to get through a test. This is core to the very life and he's teaching an oral culture to remember some truths that he believes if you remember these things, then it will guard you and protect you and draw you near to him and fit you for your own death and entrance into his kingdom. Peter was serious. We should be too. He wanted them to remember, look, with all the copies of scripture that we have, we still forget all the same, maybe even more, maybe even the saturation and the availability that we have. We have lost the wonder of the Word of God being in our midst so that we have these things written down so that we are able to recall them quickly. I exhort you, memorize the Word of God. Hide it in your heart that you may not sin against Him, that you may be more like Him as the promise is in His Word. So that brings us in this intentionally reminding and remembering process. We do so with a resolution. He is very, very clear with the rest of 12. You're established in the truth that you have. He wasn't reinventing the wheel here. The key to truth is in its observation in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. But here's what's interesting. 
We know that by implication, the word observe there means to obey. But you know what it explicitly means? It actually falls more in the realm of an apologetic, which is this, to hold fast to the confessional truth. Now look, to be taught truth and then hold fast to those truths, we have a lot of people that can be like theological eggheads and never show their faith. That's wrong. That's not accurate observation. But it is interesting, this is the same language that you would have, for instance, over in the book of Hebrews, which we went through a year ago, to say, hold fast your confession. Basically, it says this, you will never do rightly if you do not think and believe rightly. The belief that Christ alone is sufficient to save, the understanding of the gospel as it's explicitly articulated in the scriptures, if you don't hold fast to those confessions, you will not live out faithfully those confessions. Sure. They mean living it out. But the pressure is to start to believe differently. College student, look, you are going to be challenged on this level. We have seen it not just in practice with college students. Year after year, generation of college student after college generation, we see it year after year, but we also see those who then even completely deny the faith. It starts out in their practice, but they're being undone on the basic level of their confession. Hold fast your confession Make sure you're with a community of saints, a local church that is reminding you of those good, that good confession, those faithful gospel truths. Ultimately, I would say this. I've examined this statement. I've thought about it. I think I would still hold to it, basically, which means I think I would still tweet it so that it lasts for eternity, which it wouldn't. There is no distinction between the gospel and the revelation of God we call the Bible. Now, I've thought about all the nuances and all the little different things, and maybe someone could challenge me on that, but I really believe, because during times in our culture that we've had people start to divide the Word of God from Christ Himself, they have done just this. They have started to say a difference between the living Word and the written Word. And as soon as Satan gets the wedge in there... See, the fact is, and the problem is, is that the Bible says that both are alive. The The Word is living and active. It's the text... Christ we know to be living and active. He's alive. There really is no separation. In fact, you will not find gospel life apart from the gospel revelation we find in the Scriptures. So to intentionally remember these things demands that we're in the Word. And it also then demands that we teach the Word to others. As Peter is orally giving these things, he has written them down and by God's grace he has preserved them for our benefit. Live reminding Verses 13 and 14, I think, say very clearly, live dying. So basically, while you're still breathing, live reminding people of these things. But also understand that you're not going to be breathing forever. Not before these people. Verse 13. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. What are you living for that is worth dying for? What is it? A great example of what to live for, but it's found in an odd place. Any of you that know George Mueller's life know that certainly he lived this way. He lived a very Spartan life, depending faithfully on prayer to provide even bread and milk for his family. But I think an interesting part of this is to see how he dealt with the death of his wife. I think he was married actually twice, but not at the same time. One had passed away. I think he got married again, even at 66, but I may have my biographies mixed up here. But listen to what he says. It's from his own hand. The last portion of Scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. 
The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such, he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be good. It would not be a good thing for me for her to be raised again. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I've often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. In the moment of the death of his precious one, God has promised that he would give all good things for me. But he defines goodness according to God's desires, not his temporal desires. And he says, if it's, it would, he basically says, it would not be good of God to raise her from the dead if that's not God's best good for me. It put his heart at rest. He was willing to live like he was willing to die and even give up those that he loved around him because he took God at his word. So there's no separation. To live intentionally reminding people of these things means that that information, that truth, basically the gospel and the word is also fueling your ability to live like you're dying. Increasingly becoming more like him and less like the world. He says, it's right for me to do this. This word right literally means a righteous, holy act. He's not just talking about a moral rightness. He's talking about a deep-seated, holy, called-out ones kind of exercise. This is the purpose for which I am still breathing to do just this. In 2 Peter 3.1, he uses a very similar statement. You can flip over there. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Either way, even his first letter, which was with the backdrop of external physical persecution, he says, I'm reminding you. You know how that letter ends? It ends with a reminder that Christ is coming. And in the meantime, he is going to call many more to himself. Disciples. It's a very simple task. It's a simple calling. In her book, Life in the Spirit, Reflections, Meditations, and Prayers, this is what Mother Teresa says. We never try to convert those who receive aid from missionaries of charity to Christianity. But in our work, we bear witness to the love of God's presence. And if Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, or agnostics become for this better men, simply better, we will be satisfied. It matters to the, it matters to the individual what church he belongs to. If that individual thinks and believes that this is the only way to God for her or him, this is the only way to God into their life, his life. If he does not know any other way, and if he has no doubt so that he does not need to search, then this is his way unto salvation. Now look, we would agree that the appearance of Mother Teresa's life was that she lived like she was dying. Now, let me give a very specific caveat. She certainly did a lot of earthly good. She did. There were, there were many orphans fed. And there is much common grace we find even in our governments where God protects and God does other things for earthly good. But if we're talking about 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, even to have their bellies filled, but to forfeit their soul? So I'm not saying we shouldn't have any ministries like hers, but what I am saying is that if this is her confession and this is her own writing and this is consistent with what she taught, then she was not first and foremost at all leading anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Because Christ alone is the way into salvation. The sincerity of men's beliefs into otherworldly systems like Buddhism or any other men or practices or works to lead to, sincer- to salvation, no matter how sincere you are, if it is not alone in the person of Jesus Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and nothing added to it except faith, except the trust and belief that he is exactly who has revealed himself to be in the scriptures, then it is not for the gospel's sake that all of that work was done. No matter how benevolent it appears. I would rather live like I'm dying according to Mueller than I would according to Mother Teresa. Philippians 1, 21 through 26 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's why we are still here. If you're a believer, you are still here for that very reason. To cause others to have joy in Christ. See, when we say reaching others, our statement doesn't stop there. It goes on to say that they may find lasting joy in Him. We don't want to stop making disciples until they are more satisfied with Jesus than they were yesterday. And that should be our pressing case. So why are we here? We're here because we're sojourners and strangers. 1 Peter 2.11, his first letter, that he says he was doing the same thing. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Why? The passions of the flesh drive you to make this world your home. Your spirit's saying your home is with the Lord. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you could even take abuse because even if you're robbed of things, even unjustly in this world... He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He'll give you what you need, even if it's not totally everything back that you lost, but he'll give you himself. And one day the reward that you reap is far greater than anything you lost here. It's like missional living. It's hard for many of us to go from mission trips back here. Mission trips, I think, are so great. One of the reasons it's so great is because you're out of your earthly comfort zone. You're in a place very much on purpose for a very specified, for a very specified reason. But you know what? When you come back and you, you get off the plane at XNA or maybe you had to fly out of Tulsa, you drive back, which seems like a forever drive when you arrive like at 10 o'clock at night you're getting back here. That's a good time to sing some songs or do anything you got to do. But anyway, when you get back here, you walk in, you feel like, oh, I'm so glad to be home. Eat the food you want to eat. But look, we all immediately want to emulate a little bit of the lifestyle that we experienced on mission trip, thinking that maybe that will help us. And it would help us, but only if we understand the core of that. Sure, we all should do without less. But the reason that the mission trip was so great, 
the reason for that is also the reason that we can have actually some of that hope here because we have to be reminded that, let's see, I was out of my comfort zone. I was not home. I was there for a reason. You know what? You just got to get that week's mentality out of your mind and extrapolate it out to about 70, 80, and 90 years. This is not your home. This is not your banqueting table. This is not your food. You are here for a very specific reason. And then finally, when you do go home, then you can rest. Then you can rest. Guys, I'm not talking about serving in the the nursery until your your knuckles bleed. I don't think we've had any knuckle-bleeding people in our nursery, but... um, I'm not talking about there's not times to have rest even here. Sure there is. In fact, it's a gift of God to remind yourself that you're not Him and that you're not home yet to need rest. But I'm talking about the intention of everything we do. John Calvin observes this. He says, We are also taught by the example of Peter that the shorter term of life remains to us, the more diligent we ought to be in executing our office. Is that what our culture says? No, it's not. Our culture says if you work really, really, really hard, then as early as absolutely possible, you won't have to do anything else. But the scripture says is that as that drumbeat is coming of that last day, of course, none of us knows, could be any time. I was mentioning to you at the opening, college students, I know there are other places too, but I'm reaching over here. So one of my college roommates was killed in college who's about to get engaged to his college sweetheart. He's from Edmond, Oklahoma, good friend, called to ministry. We shared a lot. We shared a lot that, well, anyway, I'm going to go into college stories. But anyway, we shared a lot. But he was tragically killed because uh, out of uh, there was a big celebration uh, day that we have at Baylor, and he was helping with that, and he was holding a sign in the back of a truck, and a gust of wind took the sign, knocked him out of the truck, fell, broke his head open on the pavement, he died. Just like that. You know, everybody would say, whole life ahead of him. I mean, I'm grateful that Scott lived faithfully. Not perfectly, but he lived faithfully. He pointed people to Christ. Because we don't know. But you know, for, for many of us, we are given those 70, 80, 90 years, as the scriptures may say. And it actually says the more that we realistically understand that that time is getting shorter, we actually should be amping up service. See, God's freedom and grace in having to work less to provide for temporal needs is so you have more time to work on spiritual needs. I encourage you to think about it. Life is short. Isn't that what Peter says? He says, verse 14, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Look, I believe that he made it specifically clear to him, but Jesus made it clear to all of us. Out of Matthew 6, 25-34, he says this, He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more the value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to to the span of his life? It's a short span. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So what are you doing with your mist? 
gone before you know it. I mean, those of you that are my age, I mean, you're, you're just, you're just constantly, as soon as you hit 20 year reunion time, you're just like, oh man, it's just all downhill. And I don't mean because it's easy. I'm just fading. Everything takes longer to recover from mowing the yard, running, whatever. Just moaning. Everybody turns into a 40 year old Eeyore. We are to live in such a way that we're dying, but all of us, if you have been born again, then you're to know that there is eternity waiting for you. In the meantime, then, how do we live? We live denying, verse 15. So live reminding why you're here with the perspective that you're dying and why you're here, live in such a way that you're denying, denying yourself. There's an undeniable effort that he says here, verse 15. He reiterates what he says back in verse 5. I will make every effort. It's an undeniable effort. So you don't deny that it's full of work at all. But the undeniable effort is denying yourself is hard. But remember verse 3, you've been given everything you need to live in a faithful and godly way, to deny yourself. How does he do it? Peter does it by training others, by developing disciples to also live this way. That's how he denies himself. He realizes he exists for other people. Verses 5 through 7 guards us against the love for the world that he says are part of the, or what comes through the promises in verse 4. But verses 5 through 7 also promotes in us an intimacy with Christ. He just teaches them a simple pattern that will both guard and protect from and promote the four of going after Christ. So discipleship then shows that we depend on Him and teach others to do this as well. Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? None. One interesting spin on this in George Mueller's life was a theological development. See, when he was in Germany, he actually preached one way. This is in his life really before even he did, was doing more mission work. But then when he went to England, he was taught differently. He was taught more about what he called the doctrines of grace. He was taught more about... God's sovereignty in the saving act. And he was frustrated. Here's out of his own words. In the course of time, I came to this country, and it was England. And it pleased God then to show me the doctrines of grace in a way in which I had not seen them before. At first, I hated them. Here's a quote. If this were true, I could do nothing at all in the conversion of sinners, as all would depend upon God and the working of His Spirit. He was frustrated by that thought because he had already at this point given up much of his life and labored very hard. But when it pleased God to reveal these truths to me and my heart was brought to such a state that I could say, I am not only content simply to be a hammer, an axe, or a saw in God's hands, but I shall count it an honor to be taken up and used by Him in any way. And if sinners are converted through my instrumentality, from my inmost soul, I will give him all the glory. The Lord gave me to see fruit. The Lord gave me to see fruit in abundance. Sinners were converted by scores. And ever since God has used me in one way or another for his service. That's where theology mashes up with knowing that we're here, denying ourselves, and giving every effort to see the conversion and the disciple making of men. But at the deepest core of who we are, we are fine with however God uses us up. Because you know what? Adonai Judson believed the same theological points 
and saw almost no fruit. But you will see in his writings and through the death of many in his family, to God be the glory whenever. I mean, I would love for UBC to be Mueller-like in that we see tons. I said Mueller, not Mueller. Don't pronounce his name wrong, even though it's spelled the same. Although, John, there's where's John? Oh, he's getting ready somewhere else. Um, we have a baptism later, so he's probably up there getting ready. Um, I would like it to be Mueller-like in many ways, but Mueller, I would love to see the fruit. That would be great. I want us to see more. But part of my suspicion is, is that until we all resolutely understand that to God alone be the glory to the deepest core of who we are and then therefore live denying all that we are, my suspicion is we won't see as much fruit as we could, but we'll still see some. But I would like to see more. Glory to God. We don't want to leave our children or the people of this church just bequeathed items or some legacy of a good work ethic, even though those are all good things, I guess. Ultimately, the legacy we want to leave is a pattern, a pattern of living that can be emulated that will draw them closer to Jesus, plain and simple. That's why I love Second Peter 1 so much. In all the things that I fail at as a pastor and as a person, it constantly reminds me of the core, the simple core of who I have to be as a person and as a pastor. So are you living in such a way that would cause others around you at any point in time, meaning through whatever hardship they're going through, at any point in time they'll run back to these truths? Some of you, as you're leaving home for the first time and coming to college, you realize that you, know, you don't want to slam your parents. Maybe they're Christians, but maybe they didn't teach you some of these patterns. You can find some people here that will help you do that. You need to run to that. We all realize at different points that we weren't trained enough in, in that previous phase of life. But God's gospel and grace is good, and that's where the church can step in. A faithful church can step in and be this, disciple you. But then also reach out to the lost community and begin making disciples there and training them from the get-go well. So let me go back to what I asked you at first as we close. Do you have confidence in your death? Again, out of Christ's own words, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? But we even didn't see that as far as just American Western pursuits. You can even see this, I think, somewhat in pursuits like Mother Teresa or the Gandhis of the world who seem to give so much for the poor. And while it's a benefit on an earthly level, ultimately, if it's not found in the gospel, there's a forfeiting of the soul. And many millennials and people in the newest generation want to serve and work really hard. But no matter how much you give and how much you work, if you've not rested and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then it's really all in vain. See, the previous verses focus on following Christ in such a way that you're assured of your salvation. Are you sure? Are you sure that you will die well? And who are you following? Ultimately, you will lead others to follow the same ones that you follow. I mean, you, maybe you say it's Christ, but I would, I would want you to get more distinct. Is it the Christ of Scripture or is it just your idea of Jesus? There's plenty of people who just want Jesus to be nice and sweet and benevolent 
accepting and tolerant. But he turned over tables in his father's house and said, this is about one thing. He was exclusive in the sense he didn't demand that you do a bunch of things, but he did demand that you believe the right thing. Trusting in God alone to provide for salvation in the Messiah. He was it. Can you look at your children? Which is a good place to start. Don't neglect the disciple making down the hallway. Can you look at your children knowing that you are helping establish a pattern of living in them that will lead them to Christ? Look, just like Mueller, there's nothing in your effort you can do to make your children saved. But you are to establish patterns in your home that provide a God-honoring framework so that when they are saved, in a sense it's no surprise, but we then rush to give God glory alone. Because look, He can save and has saved many, even of you, who were in homes that didn't even mention the name of Christ unless it was a cuss word. He's able. Second question, Christian, what is your the intent of your lifestyle? Remember what intent means. It's what you're about and what you're willing to suffer for. College student, what are you willing to be reviled for? If you, if you join a campus organization, what are you willing to do without? What are you willing to be slammed for by other folks as you go through initiation processes? What are you willing to be slammed for? It doesn't mean you can't be part of the organizations. There's great gospel light needed, whether it's Greek system or whatever. But whatever the case is, what's going to be demanded of you? What's the intent? What are you willing to suffer for? Look, this is, Christianity is not just an idea. It's a definition. It's a definition of who we are and what we do. Here's some ideas. I would encourage you to be in a small group of some sort. Our main small group system, so to speak, are Bible fellowships, although we do have some home groups called life groups. But I encourage you to, to be in a place where there's a small group of people that are in personal relationship with one another for this very same intention. And if you're already in a group like that, I would encourage you to pray for a reminder of the simplicity of the intent. What are we here for? What are we worth suffering for? What's well, the one thing? Making disciples while we are still here. Of one another and of others. Start memorizing 2 Peter 1. Remember, this is an orally mnemonic culture. Peter, God has graciously through the Holy Spirit and through Peter given us some very memorable patterns of living in 2 Peter 1. I encourage you to memorize this chapter. Hide the word of God in your heart. I would encourage you then to meet with people and just walk through this chapter together. You don't have to know a whole lot about it. Just walk through it. Take it for what it says. Walk through it and pray these things with each other. Pray those seven things that they would be real in your life. Don't forget to begin at home. Don't forget to begin at home. Guys, we should be living for the very thing worth dying for. There are many lesser causes, but there's no greater cause than for the gospel of Christ because he is glorified in making disciples. In fact, according to first to Peter's first letter, it's the only reason he's not come back yet. You can break out your charts and you can figure out your puzzles on how everything fits for the end times, but when it comes to the end of it all, until he brings in his final and ultimate remnant, his final number, he ain't coming. But then when he does, he will gather us all together. And we are to be busy about this intention, this single-minded intention of reminding people of these gospel truths, living in such a way that we are dying and then denying ourselves for the sake of others while we are still here until kingdom come.
and then we can rest. Our God, I pray that you would help us in this. I pray that you would drive us near to the cross, to see at the cross that, again, we are reminded that what you did 2,000 years ago was pointed to 4,000 years before that. Through sacrificial systems and because people were sinners from the get-go. And there needed to be a savior, a provision, a provider, one who would cause relief and bring up hope and eternal life. And eventually, Christ, at just the right time, you came. You died for sinners like us, past, present, future. So that God at the cross, we realize then we have to come face to face with, this is not just a good example. I mean, who wants to wind up nailed to a cross? But you're a substitute. You're a lamb. You're a priest. You're king, all wrapped up into one. You alone live perfectly, which means we are sinners, and we have to own up to that. You died a death you didn't deserve. We did. We have to own up to that, that we deserve to die because of our sinfulness before a holy, holy God. But you provided. And that we come to you broken, saying, God, only you can save. And to trust that we need that salvation. But then believing in our hearts that you've been risen from the dead... Oh God, even the demons believe these things and yet they've not repented. They've not turned from trusting in this world. They still want their kingdom. But God, you may cause some in this room to turn from loving this world to follow your kingdom, your light. And Lord, even Christians, we get nearsighted. We focus on what's in front of us, which is this world. And we focus too much on the cares of this world. And we want to make this world more of our home. And, and we forget to live like Peter said, which is like our body is about to be put off. And in the meantime, how should we then live? God, it would change our budgets. It would change what we do with our time, how much, what kind of enjoyment we find in our families. God, may this be a checkup this morning for those of us who are believers that we would disciple well in the meantime. And may we agree to do so as a church. God, have your will during this time. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.